God's withdrawing his manifold presence, the correction of his church. O Lord, why have you made us to err from your ways, and harden our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Isaiah 63 verse 17. These are words that carry a great deal of dread in them. Tremendous words, I think, as any in the Bible. And according as our concern shall be found in them, they require very mournful thoughts of heart. It has come now to the last. This is the last cast. If we miss in pursuing this great inquiry, we are undone forever. O Lord, why have you caused us to err from your ways? Why have you hardened our hearts from your fear? God is in this manner in which we have been complaining. It is the true church of God that speaks these words. This is plain in the act and the faith as to the great interest and privilege of adoption. In the foregoing verse, where they say, Doubtless you are our Father, however things are with us, you are our Father. When all other evidences fail, faith will secretly maintain the soul with a persuasion of its relation to God. As you see by the church in this place, they were all as an unclean thing, and their holiness all faded away as a leaf. Isaiah 64 verse 6 And yet faith maintains a sense of our relation to God, and therefore they cry, Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. O Lord, you are our Father, our Redeemer, your name is from everlasting, and I am persuaded some of you have found it so, that faith has maintained an interest in a relation to God when all particular evidences have failed. So it is in our head, Jesus Christ, when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When all particular evidences fail, he can still say, My God. So is it here with this miserable and distressed church and people of God? All is lost and gone. And yet, faith cries, doubtless you are our Father. And if in the manners of this day God would help us to maintain and not let go our interest in him as our Father, by faith we should have a bottom and foundation to stand on. If it be so with us, as has been confessed to God, and I fear it is worse, we shall be at a loss for our particular evidences at one time or other, but yet it will be a great advantage when faith can maintain its station and we be enabled to say, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel will not own us, such vile creatures, and though our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and our holiness fades away as a leaf, and our adversaries have trodden upon us, yet doubtless you are our Father. The Lord help us to say thus, When we depart and we shall have a foundation of hope, I would observe here the condition of the church at that time. It was a state of affliction and oppression, of oppression on the one hand and of deep conviction of sin on the other. It is well when they go together. First, it was a time of distress and oppression as is declared in verse 18. Our adversaries have trotted down your sanctuary. The adversary had grievously oppressed them, but that which the church was most concerned in was that they had trodden down the sanctuary, disturbed the holy assemblies, and broken up the worship of God, and it is well, brethren. If under all oppression and distresses that may befall us, we really do find our principal concern is for the treading down of God's sanctuary. 
Whatever else lay upon them, this was that they complained of. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. Secondly, it was also a time of deconviction of sin with them. As the prayers continued to the end of the next chapter, you may see what a deep conviction of sin was fallen on them. In verses 6 and 7, Behold, we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away, and there is none that calls on your name. Disturbs up himself to take hold of you, for you have hid your face from us and melted us down because of our iniquities. Well then, suppose it be a state of great oppression, and a state of great conviction of sin, what is the course that we should take? We may turn ourselves this way and that way, but the church, you see, has come to this, to issue all in an inquiry after, and a sense of God's displeasure manifesting itself by spiritual judgments. In this in truth, brethren, if I understand anything of the state and condition of my own soul and yours, and of the generality of the churches of God in the world, it's that which we are in particular called to, and where we are to issue all this business, namely to inquire into God's displeasure and the reason of it, manifesting itself in spiritual judgments. O Lord, why have you caused us to err from your ways? And why have you hardened our hearts from your fear? It is but a little I shall speak to you at this time. God, I hope, will give us other seasons to pursue the same design. My present distemper and other occasions will not allow me now to enlarge upon this. However, I will lay a foundation if God help me by opening the words to you. First, what is it to err from the ways of God? Secondly, what is it to have our hearts hardened from the fear of God? And what ways are there in which God may cause us to err from his ways and harden our hearts from his fear? What may be the reasons why the Lord should deal thus severely with the poor people, after they have walked with him it may be many years, that at length they should be brought to this complaint, Lord, what have you caused us to err from your ways and harden our hearts from your fear? And then fifthly, what is to be done for relief in this condition? What course is to be taken? These are the things that should be first spoken to from the text. And then we should come to the last clause. Return for your servant's sake, and so on. I shall proceed as far as I am able. First, what is it to err from the ways of God? The ways of God are either God's ways towards us, or our way towards Him, that are of His appointment. God's ways towards us are the ways of his providence. Our ways towards God are the ways of obedience and holiness. We may err in both. I think then in that place of the Hebrews, they have always erred in their hearts, and have not known my ways. God principally intends his ways towards them. They did not know the ways of his providential workings, how mightily he had wrought for them. But the ways that God has appointed for us to walk in towards him, are those here intended. Now we may err from this two ways. One, the inward principle. Two, in the outward order. First, we may err in the inward principle, when the principle of spiritual life in our hearts decays, when we fade as a leaf. And where, then, is this our case? Secondly, we err as to our outward order, 
when we fail in the performance of duty in our walking, and in the course of our obedience and holiness that God has called us to. These, for the most part, go together. But from the text, in the whole context, I judge a first here to be principally intended, a failing in the principle, in our hearts, and in the lively power of walking in the ways of God, and of living to Him, so that to err from the ways of God is to have our hearts weakened, spiritually disenabled, often turning aside from the vigorous, effectual, powerful walking with God which we are called to. Secondly, what is it to have our hearts hardened from the fear of God? There is a twofold hardening from God's fear. There is first a total hardening, or there is a partial hardening. And a total hardening, like that mentioned in Isaiah 6 verse 10, make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. This is a total hardening that came upon the Jews when they rejected Christ. That is not the hardening here intended. Those that are given up to a total hardness will not thus humble themselves before God, nor will they plead with God. Blessed be God that he has not given us up to a total hardening, that we should utterly and wickedly depart from his ways. But, there's a partial hardening mentioned by the Apostle in Hebrew 3 verse 13. Take heed, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, lest there come a hardness upon you that may be to your disadvantage. And it is this partial hardening that is here intended, and in what it consists I shall speak a little afterward. It is this partial hardening that is intended in the text. You have hardened our hearts from your fear. Thirdly, how is God said to cause us to err from his ways and to harden our hearts from his fears? God is said to do this in several ways. He is said to do that, and it is not an uncommon form of speech in scripture, whose contrary he does not do, when it might be expected as it were from him, there be a prophet that does prophesy so and so, I the Lord have deceived a prophet. Ezekiel 14.9, that is, I have not kept him from being deceived, but allowed him to follow the imaginations of his own heart in which he should be deceived. God may be said to cause us to err from his ways, and to harden our hearts from his fear merely negatively, and that he has not kept us up to his ways, and not kept our hearts humble and soft in them. Again, God hardens men judicially in a way of punishment. This is a total hardening of which we spoke before, and there are these acts of it, which I think are as evident in the times in which we live as the judgments of God who have been in the plague or the burning of the city, inundations or anything else, spiritual judgments of God and hardening the hearts of men judicially and penally to their destruction, is are visible to every considering person as any of God's outward judgments whatsoever. This will appear if we consider the following things in which it consists. The first thing God does when he hardens men's hearts penally is to give them up to their own lusts. It is directly expressed in Romans 1 verse 24, wherefore God gave them up to their hearts' lusts. When God leaves men, and gives them up to pursue their own lusts with delight and greediness, then he is hardening them. And this is a visible judgment of God at this day. He takes off shame, fear, all restraint, and disadvantages, and gives men up to their hearts' lusts. 
The second thing is that God in penal hardening gives men up to Satan to blind them, darken them, harden them. For he is a God of this world that blinds the eyes of men. And the great work of blinding and hardening men is committed to him. And the principal way in which he works at this day is by being a lying spirit in the mouth of the false prophets crying, Peace, peace, when God has not spoken a word of peace, as it was in the business of Ahab, when Satan went and caught at a commission to seduce Ahab to go up to Ramoth Gilead. He did it by being a lying spirit in the mouths of the false prophets. God is visibly at work in the world with this judgment, giving men up to Satan, acting in the mouths of the false prophets who cry, Peace, peace, to all sorts of sinners, when God speaks not one word of peace. The third way in which God does judicially give up men to hardness of heart is by supplying them in his providence with opportunities to draw out their lusts. They shall have opportunities for them. It is commonly given for one of the darkest dispensations of divine providence towards men when it order things so that they shall have opportunities to accomplish their lusts and go on in their ways administered to them. Lastly, in pursuit of all these, God gives them over to a reprobate mind, Romans 1, that is a mind that can neither judge nor approve of anything that is good proposed to men the most convincing things in which their own interests and concern lies, and show them that eternal ruin lies at the door. It is all one. They have in a mind that can judge of nothing that is good, and the world is full of evidences of this work of God. Number three, God may be said to cause men to err from his ways and to harden their hearts from his fear by withholding upon their provocation some supply of his spirit and actings of his grace as they have formerly enjoyed, to keep up their hearts to the ways and in the fear of God. And that is a hardening here intended. The Lord had withheld upon just provocation those supplies of his grace and spirit which formerly were enjoyed, and which had given them a vigorous spirit in the ways of God, and a tender heart and a fear of God, which now they have lost, or else they could never have been sensible of it. From what has been said, we may make the following observations. 1. Even true believers themselves may, for a season so err from the ways of God, is to have their hearts partially hardened from his fear. It may fall under the state and condition to err from the ways of God by a decay of the principle of grace, and so as to have their hearts hardened from his fear, that they do not know where they are, what they are doing, how it is with them, which way to look for relief to supply themselves, or how to recover strength or heal themselves, but are forced to cry, O Lord. Why have you caused us to err from your ways and harden our hearts from your fear? Observation 2. God himself has a righteous hand in this frame of spirit that sometimes befalls believers. Observation 3. This frame is the most deplorable condition that can befall the church of God at any time, which is manifest on these two accounts, that it both takes away all solid evidences of God's special love and inevitably exposes us to our distresses and ruin if it is not remedied, and therefore it is the most deplorable condition to be brought into such a state. Let us now a little inquire as we before proposed what it is to have our hearts hardened, thus partially from the fear of God. The fear of God may be considered in several respects, as it regards sin, and so is a fear of caution and humility, or as it regards judgments, 
and so is a fear of reverence, wisdom, and diligence to improve them. Or lastly, as it regards duty, and so becomes a fear of obedience and watchfulness, not a lack of a due sense of sin, of judgments, or of a due attention to duties is this partial hardening. A partial hardening consists in a lack of a due sense of sin. It is the fear of God alone that can give us a due sense of sin. Judgments will give dread, and convictions disquiet. But it is the fear of God alone that gives us a due sense of sin. Therefore, when we lack this, our hearts are in some measure hardened from the fear of God, which discovers itself in the following particulars. 1. A lack of a due sense of secret sins. 2. A lack of an acknowledgement of their sins in their uncircumspect walking. 3. A lack of a due sense of surprises into known sins. 4. A lack of a due sense of the sins of others. Where these things are, there is a hardening from the fear of God. Number 1. This hardening of heart consists in a lack of a due sense of secret sins. And there is much in this. I shall but just name things to you. The psalmist lays great weight on it in Psalm 19, 12, and 13. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins, and these two lie the life of a believer. And there is no more safety if we are not cleansed from secret sins than if we are not kept back from presumptuous sins. Everyone will conclude if they are not kept back from presumptuous sins, they are undone forever. But the danger is the same. If they are not cleansed and if not a due sense of their secret sins, if it is asked, what are these secret sins? 1. They are vain imaginations of the mind. Secondly, the corrupt actings of the affections of the heart. And thirdly, a frame of soul suited to them. These are the things I intend by secret sins. First, the vain imaginations of the mind. The Holy Ghost tells us that by nature all the imaginations of the heart of man are evil, and act continually, and God knows what remainders there are of this vanity of mind, and these vain imaginations in all our hearts, I place it at the head of what I intend, in which we have not a due sense. We are under hardening from the fear of God. These vain imaginations of our mind are such as no eye sees, no one else knows, not the angels in heaven nor the devils, but are the special object of the eye and sight and knowledge of God. Secondly, the corrupt actings and desires of our affections in which lust conceives, lust tempts, and seduces in vain imaginations but it conceives in the corrupt desires and actings of our affections. Thirdly, in both these, if they are secretly indulged in any measure, will be continually pressing upon our nature. Both the vain imaginations of the mind and the corrupt actings of the affections towards perishing, worldly, sensual things, either to lawful objects in an undue manner or to unlawful objects. They will both be pressing on the mind, and if, by solicitation, they take place on it, then the mind is cast into a dead, 
lifeless, carnal, loose frame, which frame I also reckon among these secret sins. Now, brethren, more or less, these things are true in us. According to the several degrees of grace we have received, through the woeful negligence we have been betrayed into, do we have a due sense of these things? Or can we walk with boldness and confidence, peace and undisturbedness in our minds day and night, though these things are upon us? If so, we are in some measure hardened from the fear of God. The fear of God is not as proper work upon us, which would keep us deeply sensible of these things, deeply afflict us for them, keep us in an abhorrence of them, and make us watchful against them night and day, and not allow vain thoughts to come and go without spiritual conflicts, nor inordinate affections to the world without wounds given to it by the Spirit of God. If it is not so with us, our hearts are hardened from the fear of God. Number two, this partial hardening also contains in it a lack of a due sense of an irregular course of walking with God. There is a course of walking that will please the world, satisfy the church, and which professors shall greatly approve of. And yet if a man come to examine his own heart by the rule, he shall find his course of walking judged. For though the world has nothing to object against us, and no professors do well approve of us, yet when we come to the rule, the spiritual rule, it will discover our iniquity. We are bound to walk by rule. God will have mercy on them that walk according to this rule. We are bound to walk circumspectly in all things. Walk circumspectly, redeeming the time. Worthy of God, worthy of the Lord, which extends to all duties of our walk and the whole course of our lives. If we satisfy ourselves that our walk is such as answers known duties that are required of us, that none in the world can lay blame upon us, and professors will approve of, but do not bring it to the rule and judge it there. We err from the ways of God. And if we bring it to the rule and judge it there, but do not have a due sense, so as to be greatly humbled for it, our hearts are so far hardened from the fear of God. For if we were in the fear of God all the day long as we ought to be, it would be so with us. Many men's boldness and confidence in the world, and many men's carnal peace will be resolved at length into a neglect of this duty that they have not proved their walk by this rule, and that light God has set up in their own souls. We may, I say, brethren, have something of this spiritual hardness on our hearts in these instances. Lack of a deep sense as to secret sins. Lack of self-judging as to our irregular walking with God, in which it comes short of the biblical rule, the holy rule we are to attend to. And who can say of his walk that it is worthy of God and the Lord, which yet we are called to? Alas, is it not worthy owning ourselves and the profession we make? How much less is it worthy of God? Number three, disheartening likewise carries in it a lack of a due sense of sin. Upon surprisals into known sins, there is no man that lives and sins not. But disrespects, known sins, 
I do not mean sins that are known to others, but sins we know in particular in which we have offended against God. And known sins are great sins. Sins against light, and for the most part against engagements and promises of watchfulness. And there is something, if we examine thoroughly, of willfulness in them. And great sin should have great sorrow, and great humiliation. Truly, brethren, I am afraid, and would be jealous over myself and you, that we are apt to put off even known sins upon slighter terms than the rule of the covenant admits of. We are apt to resolve them in general into the covenant of grace and mercy, or to pass them over with one or two confessions or the like, and we do not bring every known sin to its proper issue in the blood of Christ as we ought. If we do not do this, we are hardened, thus partially from the fear of God. The true fear of God would keep us up to this, that no unknown sin should ever pass us without a particular issuing of it in the blood of Christ and obtaining peace in it. Number four, a lack of a due sense of the sin of others. It's also a great sign that we are partially hardened from God's fear. As it is a sign men are totally hardened when they do not only commit sin themselves but have pleasure in them that do it. We have before us the sins of professors the sins of the world, the provoking sins of this nation, and the generation in which we live, and the sins of all sorts of men. And I think there is not in any one duty more spiritual wisdom required of believers than how to deport themselves with a suitable frame of heart in reference to the sins of other men. Some are ready to be contended that they should sin, and sometimes ready to make sport at their sins. And for the most part, it is indifferent to us at what rate men sin in the world, so it go well with us or the Church of Christ. We understand but a little of that. Rivers of water run down mine eyes, because men keep not your law. Psalm 119, verse 136. I confess, I think there is little of this in the world, that we can truly say as he did by the Spirit of God. Did our eyes run down with water because other men, all sorts of men, do not keep God's law? There is a sign and mourning for all the abominations that are done among a people. What people? Truly people that were idolaters and false worshippers and very wicked, as that people were at that time. Yet God required there should be sign and mourning for all the abominations and took special notice of the working of grace, that one way, above all other things, and the Lord help us. I'm afraid we have very small concern for the sins of other men, and it is resolved into these two principles, a lack of zeal for God's glory, and a lack of compassion to the souls of men, which would make us deeply concerned for the sins of other men. Sin in the world has grown a common thing to us. We do not rend our garments when we hear of all the blasphemies and atheism in the world, all the blood, uncleanness, profaneness, and oaths. Every sin has grown common to us. Nobody is any longer affected. None take hold on God, saith the prophet. What will be the end of these things? Yet we speak of them as commonly as of our daily food. 
This is not to be under the power of the fear of the Lord. There is a partial hardness upon us from the fear of the Lord, in that general and almost universal unconcern that we have about the sins of other men. I thought to have spoken to the remaining heads of this partial hardness of our hearts from God's fear, the lack of a due sense of God's judgments, and the lack of a due attention to and walk with God in a way of duty. But I shall waive them, and proceed to the fourth thing proposed to be inquired into. Why does the holy God deal thus with a professing people? What reason can we find in ourselves why it should be so in making this complaint? That we neither charge God foolishly as the author and cause of sin, nor go about to extenuate our own sins, but aggravate and burden our consciences with a sense of them. Why does the holy God thus deal with us? The reasons are of two sorts. What provokes God to it? Which are the procuring reasons? And secondly, what God aims at in it? Which are the final reasons why it is thus with us? First, what provokes God to do this? I answer three things. Unthankfulness for mercy received. Thus, in the chapter in which is my text, it is said in verses 8 to 10, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. God does in this manner turn to be our enemy. He fights against us. Why does he so? Because he has redeemed us in his love. Because he has borne us in his arms all the days of our lives. Because he has manifested that in all our afflictions he was afflicted. Because he had been a savior, and he heard us, and under all these mercies received we have rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. We have been unthankful and ungrateful, therefore he has become our enemy, and fights against us. I beg of you, brethren, that we may call over those innumerable mercies we have received from the Lord, spiritual mercies, temporal mercies, and consider whether these evils be not befallen us whether our unthankfulness for mercy has not caused God to become our enemy and to fight against us. A second reason is an ordinate cleaving to the things of the world at a most undue season for it. It may be it would not provoke God so much thus to fight against us and harden our hearts from his fear if the season of it was not undue. Do not we see with our eyes and hear with our ears that God is unsettling all things here below, and that all these things shall be dissolved? When God gives so many intimations that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness, cleaving inordinately to the things of the world at such a season as that which provokes God to deal thus? For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. God smote them for the iniquity of their covetousness in such a woeful, undue season. Let us, brethren, be at work. I may be under great mistakes and misapprehensions, 
but I must tell you what is upon my heart. I cannot but think that unless we are particularly at work, every one of us, we shall be overtaken with these dismal and dreadful effects. God will appear against us and fight against us. The third reason is our unprofitableness and unsuitableness to the means of grace we have enjoyed. Oh, this barren land upon which the rain has often fallen, and it has brought forth nothing but briars and thorns. We have had our proportion in it, brethren. You of this congregation can even make your boast of what you have enjoyed of this in a man's ministry for many years. But all oh, the learningness and barrenness that is among us, now all is done, our unsuitableness to the means we have enjoyed. We may repent one day that we ever had any among us who excelled others in gifts and graces. If we profit no more, we have not profited suitably to the means we have enjoyed. But every vain and foolish imagination has turned us aside from keeping as we ought to the good and holy ways of God. We do not flourish in fruitfulness and savoriness and profitableness answerable to what the dispensations of God have been towards us. For the dew of God has been upon us from time to time. Now, besides the things named which are public causes why God has brought us under this dispensation, let us all search our hearts and say, Lord, why have you caused me thus far to err from your ways, and harden my heart from your fear? Why do I no longer have my former faith, love, affection, and zeal? Why do I not mourn more? Where are my tears and humiliation, those heart-breaking sighs and groans after God which my heart was once filled with? O oh Lord, why is my heart thus hardened from your fear? Let us inquire into the particular reasons that at last we may come to cry. Return, O Lord, for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Number two, what does God aim at in such a dispensation? We have mentioned the procuring reasons and causes. Now what are the final ends why God will thus deal with us? There are two ends God seems to have in these things. The first is to awaken us to the consideration of what an all-seeing God he is with whom we have to do. When we please the world and one another and ourselves, in our walkings and conversations, God will have us know that he is displeased. Till we please ourselves and cry peace and please the world and one another, yet God will so withdraw in spirit and grace that we shall be forced to say, Why is God thus displeased with us? He will have us glorify him as one that is an all-seeing God, as one that knows our inward frames and tries us upon them. And number two, God does it to awaken us, if there be anything of true grace in our hearts. A sense of spiritual judgment will awaken us, when all outward judgments in the world will not do it, nor thunder and lightning be round about us, if ruin and the sword be before us in the earth underneath be ready to swallow us up. They will not work so kindly upon a believer's heart as a sense of spiritual judgments. I hope God has a design of love to awaken us all by this dispensation to return to him.